Yes, may it please the court, counsel. Uh, Wayne Holstead on behalf of the appellant in this case, Catherine Brennan. Um, <clears throat> the last hearing in district court in this matter, uh, Judge Toster and I were having a fairly interesting discussion of whether Heck v. Humphrey is applicable, applicable to a case that involves a non-criminal um, civil commitment proceeding. And this is not a quote, but what he noted is that if it did not apply, he would have to be instructed so by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals because he thought he was bound to apply it in our case. So I guess in some substance that's why we're here because I don't think it does apply. But we've settled that. I mean, I wrote an opinion called Thomas versus Ashen where we applied the heck bar to a civil commitment situation. To a criminal. So you're saying even though it's the same, so, so, it's, so it's somehow different but I think the underlying, I, I get the, the but it's a distinction without a difference because habeas is the sole remedy for releasing somebody from commitment. It's, it's releasing the body at common law. And so it would apply equally whether the person is a convicted criminal or not. Why is that wrong? Well, habeas corpus wouldn't have applied in this case because uh, she wasn't released from her court-enforced drugs until after the appeal time expired and she was released. Uh, what we're here for isn't, but it doesn't have to do with getting her released from the commitment. It, the commitment sh shouldn't have happened in the first place. Yeah, but I, I on unlawful confinement, which is your, your first claim, um, I have never seen a Section 1983 case where a court comes in and says, oh yeah, uh, we're going to release you from conf confinement. Um, it's always happened in a civil commitment, criminal or not, in a habeas petition. Uh, <coughs> It's always difficult to argue with a judge who wrote the opinion. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, well, I guess what I'm looking for, is there any case you can cite? Let me reverse it. Is there any case you can cite where um, you, have, you have released somebody from civil commitment without a habeas petition in a Section 1983 action? No, but I also think that this is the only case I've seen cited where it applies to a non-criminal case. And, uh, and going back to Heck v. Humphrey, and there's federal statutes, Congress has intervened on this as well. Uh, Heck v. Humphrey applies to unique situations involving criminal defendants. It has no place. Well, that's not necessarily so, right? I mean, um, you know, Heck itself may be limited that way, right? But if you just think about the logic that underlies the, the whole idea, the idea is what's the remedy that you're looking for in 1983? What do you want here? Money damages, right? Yes. Okay. Now you want cash, and you want cash because um, you think that the uh, that the state um, uh, deprived your client of their fundamental rights. Okay, they violated the Constitution and uh, deprived your your client of the fundamental rights. But in the end, the heck bar is out there because we don't want federal courts undermining the orders and judgments of state courts when they could have been pursued in the state courts and could have been pursued on appeal. And uh, then from the state court constitutional ruling, they could go up to the United States Supreme Court. And so we don't really want collateral attacks on those judgments when what would have to happen is we would have to say that notwithstanding that the issues were fully litigated in state court because when you don't appeal, you're stuck with what you got. Um, and and then the, the, the response is, is that, you know, we've got to 
um, undermine that state court order. And there's a federalism question at work here. And that's really what Heck is trying to protect. They're saying, you know, no mere district court, no mere circuit court of appeals should tell the state they've got it wrong. That's got to come from the state courts or the Supreme Court of the United States. So why is that logic flawed? Well, I Re think <coughs> uh, what the court has done here is segued my uh, Heck argument into my Rooker-Feldman argument. Um, I have. Because uh, Heck doesn't really say that. Uh, Rooker-Feldman, which is the other issue that we uh, debated, and going back to uh, a proper analysis of Rooker-Feldman, I thought Judge Tosker did a, a nice job of accepting that it really begins with the uh, Lance v. Dennis and Exxon v. Saudi cases, in which this court, uh, it's as good a decision as I've seen in any of the circuit courts of appeal in the Symes v. Huckabee case. Uh, Judge Tosker and I agreed to follow Sainz v. Huckabee. He just drew the wrong conclusion. Um, and the Sainz case, um, to me, stands for the principle that uh, federal issues, uh, if a litigant has not been given a fair and reasonable opportunity to litigate issues in state court, uh, they should be allowed in federal court. Uh, and that's what the case says, where Judge Toster and I disagreed. He said, but your client didn't raise it in state court, to which my response is, she was drugged. She wasn't allowed to bring witnesses. She wasn't allowed to um, have her own counsel. So she really didn't have a fair and reasonable opportunity to, to litigate the issue in state court. And that's where uh, I think we have, have to get around the Rooker-Feldman analysis, uh, as well as Heck v. Humphrey. Well, what do you want us to do in this case? I, I mean, is, is, is what you, are you asking us to go back and look at the commitment record and say the state court judge got it wrong? No. Well, well then, but you say you, you, but you say they got it wrong. So how do we make that decision without looking <coughs> at this? Uh, I guess I'm saying, well, how do we get from here to where you want to be? How do we, how do we get to a point where we can say, that the state court got it wrong? Uh, for starters, what I would like this court to do is reverse and send it back to district court with some clarification that Heck v. Humphrey doesn't apply, Rooker-Feldman doesn't apply. You want the district court to make that determination? Yes, I do. And but so, would, they, would they then go back and review the entire record and say, well, I, I wouldn't have reached this same decision? I don't know that that's even totally necessary. Uh, the facts which were pleaded and which we rely on has to do with that their processes and procedures are inadequate to protect somebody. And Minnesota law is pretty clear. Uh, you can't commit somebody uh, if they're having problems with a drug reaction or alcohol. There has to be a diagnosis of mental illness. Uh, that wasn't done here. I mean, there was a diagnosis, but it was incorrect. I, I like the way that Judge Toster explained it. They have said she has a history of mental illness. He said she has a history of civil commitments. Her doctor, her prior doctor, said she is not mentally ill. But, but how's a social worker supposed to know this? I don't know. Right? I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, and, and how in this process, I mean, you know, we're not even sure. See, this looks a lot to me like it start, started life. It should have been a medical malpractice <clears throat> question, but we're not even sure whether the standard of care in a medical malpractice case would say that the diagnosis of this very rare uh, genetically caused reaction to medications was the cause, right? And so, I mean, it seems <clears throat> like we're going, I mean, I mean, I mean, I get where we're really, 
I mean, I just don't know how you can make this thing all fit together because you've got, you know, a federal court is going to go around telling the state courts that they couldn't enter the commitment order because of a diagnosis that they couldn't know, didn't know, uh, while relying on other independent parties. Um, and we're going to give rise to a cause of, of action for that that results in monetary damages. I mean, it seems pretty, pretty like a long ways out to me. Um, <clears throat> you actually made one of my main points. How is a social worker supposed to make this diagnosis? They're not. They, the social worker needs to rely on the hospitals and the medical professionals to make the diagnosis. And they didn't even bother to consult her own treating physicians who would say she's not mentally ill. Uh, point number one. Point number two. Would they have said that at that time? Do you have evidence in the record that says that, that there was a physician who knew at the time that the civil commitment took place that she was in an adverse medical uh, or an adverse reaction to medication? And if so, why in the world didn't that doctor change the medication? We have two doctors involved, uh, her current doctor, Dr. Johnson. There is a letter in the file where he says that uh, the drugs that she's been given are harmful. She should not be given those medications, but he was not consulted. Her prior doctor, Dr. Anderholm, was initially a defendant in the case. I dismissed him when I found out that nobody ever talked to him. And he had things that he could have said, too, but um, when, when I through discovery, learned that the hospital's uh, the social worker never contacted them. I, I had to dismiss them. It's just an unrelated state malpractice case at that point. Uh, the reason I want to be in federal court is I don't want to be in Cass County, Minnesota. I, there's no way she's going to get a fair shake up there. I have to go back to the same judge, same lawyers, same charging um, well, it can't be the same judge. The same judge has independent factual knowledge of the case. Then in any court in the world, that person's disqualified. It's a small county, though, and uh, as but, a practical matter. The, the fact that you don't want to go to Cass County with what looks like to me to be a classic case of medical malpractice doesn't, doesn't give you leave to try to shoehorn it into a 1983 <coughs> action. And, and that's, I mean, the, the more I read it, the more I kept saying to myself, you know, if, if he's right, she was given the wrong drug, she was given the wrong diagnosis, and that's all medical malpractice. That's not, I, I don't know. My, my viewpoint actually evolved the other way the more I got into this case. Uh, it started to me as a medical malpractice case dealing with the akathisia, but the, the statutes are important. The statute that says she should not have been given drugs without a Jarvis hearing uh, she was immediately drugged. At, I, I still don't understand how she checks into a hospital in Minnesota and they put her in a car and send her to North Dakota and they give her drug, drugs just to circumvent Minnesota law. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, the standard of care, I don't think, and this is why my thinking evolved the more I looked into it, uh, it's not a medical malpractice standard of care. It's a statutory standard of care. Minnesota statutes, which I cited, Required that they make a distinction between mental illness and uh, drugs and alcohol. They violated the statute when they didn't even bother to make that inquiry. Counsel, I want to go back to a question that Judge Malloy asked you earlier, and actually, I think you opened it. I think that what you said, and I just want to, I want to ask you whether this is your take, is that your client never should have been committed in the first place. Is that is that the essential 
underlying claim? Yes, it is. All right. So I'm going to read Thomas versus Eschen. In short, Thomas's real complaint is that he never should have been committed in the first place. And then it goes on and says, as long as those judgments stand, the Iowa judgments in that case, he cannot proceed with his wrongful commitment claim. Now, you've told me that one difference is, is the, that, um, that that was a criminal and this is not. Is there any other? This sounds like an identical case to this one other than the one distinguishing characteristic you came up with. Is there anything else? Yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and t- I read Thomas Vieschen a number of times before I wrote the brief. Uh, I've now read it a number of times since I wrote the brief, and uh, I'm sure the court's well aware of footnotes four and six. Uh, footnote four, there's a carve-out, and it applies to this situation where uh, the point made was Heck v. Humphrey doesn't apply uh, in a case where the party really wasn't able to represent themselves. An ex parte one is, is uh, yes. And it's ex parte in that case, but I think our facts are very similar. She wasn't able to defend herself um, by the reasons I already mentioned. Uh, I also know uh, footnote six. Um, and I, I actually had conceded that Heck v. Humphrey, the court would be allowed to dismiss with prejudice, but footnote six doesn't say that. Uh, I know in footnote six, uh, if there is a dismissal, if Heck v. Humphrey does apply, it has to be without prejudice. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies to all the dismissals in this case. They all should have been without prejudice. If we have to go back to state court, which I really don't want to do, um, um, we, we have to be given that opportunity. Well, and that gets to Judge Malloy's other point, which is that if this is a medical malpractice claim, you would potentially have be collaterally stopped or race judicata if we didn't dismiss it without prejudice. Uh, correct. But I, and I, I hope I haven't been unclear. Uh, I had three counts to the complaint. The third was a medical malpractice claim, I, and I'm not appealing that one. But, uh, it's just counts one and two. The idea that they didn't have a chance to contest this, like, um, Minnesota has to have a provision that requires a person who is the subject of a commitment proceeding be represented by counsel. There had to be a lawyer standing there next to her, right? Because the Constitution requires, and I mean, I presided over mental health court for years as a state judge. You know, I mean, and so how was she deprived of her opportunity to litigate it? She wasn't allowed her own counsel. Her court-appointed counsel did not represent her. Uh, technically, legally, he did, but I, I think it's pretty unfair to required to use court-appointed counsel who basically says whatever they say is... Well, she could have hired her own lawyer. Why couldn't she? They wouldn't let her. Is that in the record where she was deprived of her ability to to hire her independent counsel? Yes. Where so? In her affidavit. I I believe it is. No, I wouldn't put it that way. I'll I'll vote. Thank you. Thank you. Again, thank you, Your Honor. Good afternoon. My name is Jim Andreen. I represent Cass County and Marsha McMillan. Uh, I'm going to go through this in a little bit of counterintuitive way, but I think it, my order is, is valuable. First, the Cass County Health and Human Veterans Services is not an entity that can be sued, so that's the first uh, name on the complaint, so they're not in. Uh, Marsha McMillan is sued in her official capacity. Uh, that brings in Cass County. It takes out Ms. McMillan in a personal capacity. 
There is no Manel claim here. I've read the complaint many times. It's very hard to read, but there's no claim that some policy practice or procedure, custom policy or practice um, at Cass County is somehow uh, unconstitutional. Uh, certainly a single act, this commitment can't suffice for that. So turning to the, the main reason the court dismissed this under Rooker-Feldman, um, I've read uh, the, the cases that Mr. Uh, that counsel uh, provides, um, and I'm uh, here to say the court did read Symes and did read Symes properly, and that is is that in Symes the court declined to reach the independent right that was presented. There was no independent right here presented. There wasn't anything presented by. Um, the plaintiff or the appellant uh, to uh, allow for a Simon's exclusion. And the court is, uh, Judge Erickson's absolutely right, uh, there, w there is a, a, an absolute necessity of having a lawyer at these commitments and in fact we put the, the order for commitment in there and she was uh, um, represented by a court-appointed attorney, not the county's attorney as she says, but a court-appointed attorney that the court is very familiar with. Um, and I wasn't offended by the case until I got the feeling that he thinks that this hearing was done in somebody's cabin uh, off on Cass Lake somewhere. This was in a, a, a courtroom. We had Judge Austed presiding. We had uh, the appellant uh, represented by counsel who was free to call any witnesses he wanted to. We had a petition that uh, met every facet of Minnesota law. There's been no suggestion that it didn't meet Minnesota law. Uh, we had two doctors, independent doctors, testify uh, as to the mental illness, not just a history of commitment. Uh, and finally, if the family doctor was supposed to come in, uh, I will tell you that the letter that counsel refers to came two, two years after all this happened. So. Uh, this is, uh, according to uh, all the laws in the state of Minnesota and all laws of the United States, uh, a perfectly typical proceeding and a perfectly reasonable proceeding. I, I got to be honest, um, going the Rooker-Feldman route, and I know that Judge Tostrud mentioned it, makes me really nervous as an old Fed courts professor. Um, our cases seem to um, ignore, to some degree, Saudi Basic, the Supreme Court case where we talk, where we where the court basically got rid of our inextricably intertwined test. And this one doesn't feel, this one feels like it only gets here on Rooker Feldman if it's because of the inextricably intertwined test. In other words, they're seeking different relief, money damages. They're not actually trying to appeal the state court decision to us or to the district court, which is why I think the heck bar works a little bit better. But I just wonder if you're as nervous as I am about trying to rely on Rooker Feldman here. It just feels like, the court's been limiting it over and over again over the last 20 years. Well, I have two things to say about that. First, I don't agree that, that, the, that the inextricably entwined is what uh, Judge Hostrud dealt with. Judge Hostrud dealt with is there some independent uh, either act or, or claim here that isn't basically trying to appeal from uh, uh, the district courts or the, the Cass County district courts uh, commitment order. Um, 
The second thing I would say is that's why I started with the other part. If there is jurisdiction here, Judge Hostra did provide four other methods by which this matter should be dismissed. And by the way, it was dismissed without prejudice, so I'm not concerned with that either. Um, we've, you've talked a lot about heck. I feel I shouldn't have to tell the court uh, how this works, but the 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 appellant is asking you to overturn settled Eighth Circuit uh, law on a lot of different issues, but this one especially. Um, and on the ground that uh, in Thomas V. Eschen, the person was happened to be a criminal, and and the appellant here is not. That's a meaning, or that's a difference without a meaning. There's no real difference between a civil commitment between a criminal, not criminal, lawyer, judge, whatever. It all runs the same way. So I don't think there's any value here in trying to overturn Thomas V. Eschen and make an exception for somebody who just happens not to be a criminal. Is there, if, if we wanted to review it, is there a transcript of the commitment hearing? Yes, I'm positive there is. It's not in the record. But we've provided to you the petition. We've provided to you the various orders as well in the lower court. Well, um, based upon your review of the record, is do you believe there's any merit to uh, Mr. Halstead's argument that uh, she asked for her own attorney and made a specific request to hire an attorney? Never heard of that before in my life. And quite frankly, it's not in the brief. Um, the point of it, the point of it is, and it's not certainly in the complaint, but the point of the matter is, is that the only reason you get a court-appointed attorney is because you can't afford uh, or un are unwilling to provide your own attorney. Let's face it, the court county doesn't want to go and pay for a, uh, an attorney that it doesn't have to. I would ask that you affirm the district court's decision. Um, if there are no further questions, I'm going to yield the balance of my time to my uh, co-counsel. Thank you. Mr. Angel. Thank you, Your Honors. Uh, my name is Chris Angel, and I represent PSJ Acquisition LLC, DBA PSJ uh, Hospital. Um, the, the Section 1983 claims against PSJ and Essentia Health St. Joseph's Medical Center were dismissed for the very same reasons. So there's going to be overlap between Ms. Ebert's uh, client and my own. I am going to address the state actor and the heck doctrine issues. Ms. Ebert will address the deliberate indifference uh, issue. And I realize my time is brief, and so I'm going to be uh, as quick as I can. Uh, first of all, it's important to know that Ms. Brennan's claims were dismissed on Rule 12. Rule 12, as your honors know, challenges the adequacy of the pleading itself. The, the, the only thing that matters for the purpose of a Rule 12 motion or the propriety of, of, a, of a dismissal of Ms. Brennan's claims must be judged solely upon what was pled in her complaint. Not other documents, not statements that she made in her briefs to this court or to the district court, a Rule 12 motion challenges the adequacy of the complaint itself. The state actor issue. Uh, Section 1983, as the court knows, applies only to state actors. Both PSJ and Essentia St. Joseph's Medical Centers uh, are private entities. 
Doesn't mean, I understand, doesn't mean that a private entity can't be considered a state actor for the purpose of a 1983 claim. But the law is when you serve, when you sue a private entity or private person for section 1983, the complaint needs to articulate exactly how and why that private entity or private person is a state actor for the purpose of that 1983 claim. Ms. Brennan's section 1983 claims, both of them, wrongful confinement and medication, were dismissed because she did not do that. Okay? We addressed the arguments that Ms. Brennan made in her initial brief and our own brief, and so I'm not going to talk about those. Uh, but I do want to talk briefly about the arguments that Ms. Brennan made in her reply brief. One of them is, Ms. Brennan argues that PSJ and Essentia St. Joe's were state actors simply because they participated in the commitment process. Number one, she didn't plead that in her complaint. That in and of itself is fatal. But even if she had, courts across this country have rejected the argument that a private entity is a state actor simply by participating in the commitment process. And a compilation of those cases is set forth in Jones versus Diner, 2009, Westlaw 1285842, which Judge Tostrud referenced in uh, his order uh, of dismissal. Ms. Brennan also cites the Rawson versus Recovery Innovations case. But Rawson is materially distinguishable. Rawson was a case that was decided on summary judgment based on evidence that had been presented to the court. However, to get to the summary judgment stage, a plaintiff must first adequately plead a claim. Ms. Brennan's claims were, not, were dismissed not because the court decided that the evidence didn't support a conclusion that PSJ or Essentia St. Joe's were state actors, but because the amended complaint failed to even allege facts supporting that conclusion, and that is why her claim is dismissed. Had Ms. Brennan alleged such facts in her amended complaint, she would have had the same opportunity that Rawson did to have the issue evaluated on the merits, but uh, Ms. Brennan did not do that. Can I ask you about PSJ and in particular um, the fact that PSJ is in another state? I mean, the argument I think is that, well, they were following the Minnesota statutes and made them a state actor. At least that's one, one strand of the argument. But I don't know how that could possibly be true if PSJ is in another state. Maybe I'm missing something here, but is that is that something that was litigated below and talked about below? It, it wasn't. And I don't, to be quite honest with you, given the posture, I don't have a great understanding of why it was that she was sent to PSJ in the first place. My understanding, as limited as, a, as it is, is that there simply weren't any beds available in Minnesota facilities, and that's why she was sent to PSJ. But that's speculation on my part. Well, let me ask you this. Um, now, PSJ, is, uh, make sure I understand the facts, because uh, a lot of different hospitals, a lot of moving parts here. Sure. But PSA is the entity that was alleged to have injected her with this, quote, B-52 cocktail uh, when she was transferred prior to the commitment. So, yep. I, I, assuming Heckfrey Humphrey covers all post-commitment conduct, would it co well, first of all, would it cover pre uh, commitment conduct, and if not, what is your best argument as to, or what's your best defense to an allegation that that was uh, a, a violation of the rights? Well, I think the the met improper administration of medication claim doesn't fail due to heck. The wrongful confinement claim fails due to heck. 
To the extent that she's alleged this improper administration of medication claim, it fails because, number one, she didn't allege that the private entities were state actors, didn't allege any facts supporting that conclusion. And number two, she didn't allege facts showing deliberate indifference, which my colleague, Ms. Ebert, is going to address. So that's why that claim fails. And I'm not going to talk about heck. Your Honor, was this, I agree, that issue has been decided. And uh, I understand he can say that it was decided wrongly, but that shouldn't be a winning argument. So, thank you. Ms. Ebert. Good afternoon. May I please the court? Uh, as my colleague, Mr. Angel, just indicated, um, the basis for my argument today is focusing on the deliberate indifference claim. And I think it's a relatively straightforward issue that's presented to your honors here today from the record. The question, as Mr. Angel noted, is not whether or not um, something was wrong with the commitment process itself, but how it was pled for purposes of a Rule 12 motion. And I think there's no dispute when you look through the record here today that with regard to the improper administration of medication claim, there's simply nothing in the complaint that alleges deliberate indifference. At best, or at most, you may have a claim of medical malpractice being asserted, whether it's through a separate claim or through some of the arguments that were advanced here today. But that's not enough. Deliberate indifference claims have to be supported by much more than simply a claim of negligence or even gross negligence. And the case law on that is very clear. In order to state a cognizable claim, the complaint must have more specific facts about the entities being aware of the serious medical needs and then deciding to disregard those serious medical needs. And that's just simply lacking uh, from the record that we have here today. Um, one area that I wanted to, to um, raise is whether or not this question of whether or not uh, appellant has even preserved the argument with regard to the deliberate indifference. Um, beyond simply a mere mention of the standard itself, there's not an argument that's advanced um, about that um, in the brief. I think a very strong argument could be made that since there was no meaningful argument advanced, that that issue uh, has been waived. Um, but regardless, as I said, uh, the record is also very clear uh, that there's simply no facts pled of deliberate indifference. Um, and with regard to my clients in particular, um, there's, there's no dispute that the B-52 cocktail, the administration of the neuroleptic, neuroleptic medication, was not administered by my clients, and there's no allegation of that. Um, in the briefing, you will see um, that appellant acknowledges that, that there's there's not even a reference to medication being administered at all by my clients. So that's another uh, issue where the deliberate indifference uh, to, excuse me, to the extent that that claim, the invasion of privacy claim, is premised on the ad improper administration of medication simply fails in this instance. Uh, I think I heard uh, Mr. Holstead say today that he was not challenging the medical malpractice claims and the dismissal. I will say that in the briefing, um, there's a very clear reference to that, that he's certainly not making a, an appeal for the Prairie St. John uh, uh, claims, the PSJ claims. It was less clear whether he was making, um, an, uh, an, uh, or, excuse me, was appealing the dismissal of the medical malpractice claims against my clients. 
To the extent he, he's not, and to the extent I may have misheard him, uh, I would simply defer to the uh, record on that as well. There is no um, standard of care violation even alleged in the complaint, such that it would have, would have satisfied the pleading requirements. Thank you. Mr. Holstead. I will give you one minute. Um, as when I looked at your amended complaint, I never see the words deliberate indifference, uh, let alone any facts that would, would, would allege that. So yeah, can where I, is it in the complaint? <clears throat> uh, it isn't specific, uh, pled that way. Um, if, if I can circle back, though, the mm -hmm. question that we're left with at the end of my uh, first time up here, uh, it's page 9 of Ms. Brennan's affidavit, which is on page 74 of my appendix, and it's paragraph 9 in her affidavit when she talks about the council. Um, regarding Twombly and what's required, uh, I still read Twombly as really requiring, uh, are there facts, not just conclusions of law? Uh, is there a cognizant legal theory? Um, and can you draw inferences from what was pled to support the legal theory? Now, I think their uh, viewpoint of uh, Twombly is a little more aggressive, and maybe I'm a little too restrictive. Uh, but I think what we're really dealing here with our summary judgment issues and not Rule 12 can issues. Can we, just really quickly, can we consider the affidavit given that we're on a, on a motion to dismiss? And it isn't really embraced by the pleadings here, the affidavit. The, the affidavit was submitted uh, in response to... Um, the most for summary judgment from Prairie St. John's, and I, it's, it's in the record. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, the uh, case has been well argued, and uh, we will take the case under advisement. Thank you very much for your time. Um, Mike, do you want to take a break? I'm fine. I'll be fine.